Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 29. Commencement. There were two J. Chances in the San Francisco phone book, but neither of them was the one we wanted. We put what was left of our collective brains together and decided a better place to find Cricket's address was the art school. Stockwell drove his explorer so hard on the way downtown that he actually got airborne coming over the hill on Oak Street. I reminded him that Steve McQueen and Bullet had a Mustang Fastback, not a tipsy SUV, and he reminded me to keep my trap shut. There was no security guard on duty in the art school lobby, so we skipped the sign-in ceremonies and rode the elevator straight up to the sixth floor. The hallway was deserted, and the white-haired sourpuss in front of Dr. Jang's office was also MIA. I came up to Jang's imposing door and knocked lightly. Nothing. I tried again and got the same non-response. Maybe it was all the people who weren't where they were supposed to be, but I was beginning to get a case of the heebie-jeebies. I looked over at Stockwell. He scowled and gestured impatiently. You're a big boy. Open the door and go in. I gripped the knob. I was almost relieved to find it locked, but while the lock had been set, the latch hadn't gone into the strike plate and I was able to push open the door. I was told later that the police photographer fainted when he saw what I saw then. Julie Jang lay on her desk. She was wearing a jumper like the one from the day before, but the material of the dress had been pushed well past her waist. Her pale, chubby legs were parted, and a twisted chromium bar protruded from the middle of them. Another shorter bar was sticking out of her mouth. Blood had pooled at her feet, and then run off the edge of the desk to form a manhole-sized stain on the carpet. The chair she'd designed was in pieces on the floor near the bloodstain. She'd been raped to death with her own artwork. A frisson of revulsion ran through me. My brain seemed to shut down and I slumped against the doorframe. I didn't have a particularly favorable impression of Dr. Jang, but whoever killed her had hated her with a depth of feeling I couldn't understand. Hers was a grisly, soul-crushing death. No one deserved it. No one deserved even the contemplation of it. I heard Stockwell say, What is it? And felt him elbow past me into the room. He was silent for a moment, then he whispered, Holy Jesus. Something at the corner of my eye caught my attention, and I jerked around to see the white-haired secretary spread out on the carpet along the near wall of the office. Her arms were crossed peacefully over her chest, but she didn't look any more alive than Jang. I dropped to my knees and put a finger to the carteroid artery. It was hard to tell, but I thought I felt a faint beat. I'd been told by a paramedic friend that blood flushing into the nail beds was an easier test. I pressed on her index finger and saw the nail go pink. Stockwell had been watching from near the desk. His face was as pale as alkali. 
She's still with us? Yeah, I croaked. I think so. I took her arm from where it lay across her chest and put it by her side. There was a red mark like an ant bite in the crook of it. She might have been drugged, I said. I think I see a needle mark. You got a handkerchief? I stood and passed Stockwell one from my hip pocket. He went around the desk to where the phone was lying, next to Dr. Jang's head. Her lips were cut and swollen from the assault with a metal bar, but mercifully, her eyes were closed. Stockwell wrapped the handkerchief around the receiver and picked it up. He used a pin from his breast pocket to press the numbers on the dial pad, but stopped after he dialed 9-1. Wait a minute, he said. He set the receiver down. There's something in her mouth. I looked at him with what must have been an incredulous expression, and he turned even paler. I mean something other than the bar. He wrapped the handkerchief carefully around the chromium metal and pulled out the bar. Dr. Jang's mouth gaped open in a hideous parody of her Bob's big boy grin. There was a wadded up piece of stationery that filled almost the entire space. Are you sure that was a good idea? I asked. No, and this one is even worse. He set the bar down on the desk and picked at a corner of the sodden paper. It tore off in his fingers. He grimaced, pulling her mouth open wider with one hand while taking a bigger pinch of paper with the other. This time he managed to extract the compressed ball. A piece of chipped tooth and a long string of saliva followed. I bore down hard on the Captain Crunch I'd eaten this morning as it tried to circumnavigate my esophagus. Stockwell moved beyond pale to bilious green. He stared at the buff-colored paper he held daintily between two fingers. There was printing on it, but it was impossible to read without spreading it out flat. He placed the ball on the desk and teased it open. It was crinkled and soaked through with saliva and blood, but in the end it was clearly identifiable as a letter printed on school stationery. It was dated about a month earlier and had been sent by Dr. Jang. The body of it read, This letter serves as an official notice that you are expelled from the San Francisco Lyceum of Art, effective immediately. This expulsion is for physically assaulting a Lyceum instructor during the course of a conversation about the appropriateness of your submission for an assignment in FND-1120L, Figure Drawing. The findings of our investigation into this incident have been supplied to you in previous correspondence. Due to the severity of the violation, there will be no appeal of this decision, and no application for readmission will be accepted. In close, please find a check for $523.47, which is a prorated refund of your tuition payment for this quarter. The letter was addressed to James R. Shantz at a Masonic Avenue apartment in the Haight. At last, the smoking gun, said Stockwell. What this whole thing has been about, little Jimmy gets kicked out of art school, so he finds a new way to get his work noticed and lashes out at the institution he holds responsible. Stockwell dug into his front pocket and pulled out his keys. Take them. Why? You've got to get over there. He wouldn't have left the letter as a calling card if he were staying in town. But there's a small chance you can still catch him. He can't have killed her very long ago. I took the keys out of his hand. Why don't you go? Or come with me? Someone's got to stay here with a secretary until the ambulance comes. And someone has to explain what happened and get the police after chance. That's the most important thing. Given the way we've tampered with the evidence... 
and you being the highly respected keyhole peeper that you are, the first thing the San Francisco cops would do if they found you here is slam you down on the floor, handcuff you, and toss you in the back of a cruiser. It'd be hours before they believed you enough to put out an arrest warrant for him. He had a good point. I just wasn't sure how much more respect a suspended officer from East Palo Alto was going to be given. I borrowed his pen to scribble Chance's address on my palm and hurried across the room. Reardon, said Stockwell just before I got through the door. What? There's a Colt 44 special in a lockbox under the back seat. Keys on the ring. Be careful. It's a single action. Cricket's apartment was in a brown stucco sarcophagus from the 1960s, about a block off of hate. I got Stockwell's cold out from the lockbox, and after checking that the hammer was down on an empty chamber, stuck it under my waistband. It was a heavy, awkward western-style six-shooter with a seven-and-a-half-inch barrel, and it felt like it was going to drop down my pants at any minute. Having it was better than going after Cricket unarmed, but as a single action, the gun had to be cocked before it was fired, which made it just that much more awkward to use. I went up the walk to the front of the building. A high wooden fence protected the back of the property. A gate in the fence was propped open with a U-Haul moving box full of books, and I could see through it to a door on the side of the building that was held open by yet another box. It looked like moving day for someone, and I had to wonder if the someone was cricket. I scanned the street carefully for hunky psychopaths lugging household items, but the only person extant was a chubby teenage female in skin-tight hip-huggers with a serious case of girl love handles. She caught me staring at her, sneered, and popped her gum. I went through the gate and up to the side door. It led into a dingy laundry room, crammed full of coin-operated machines and a folding table with a tangled pile of sheets and Bart Simpson boxer shorts on top. A balloon dialogue above Bart's head urged, Don't have a cow, man. I didn't have a cow, but I did have the colt, which I pulled from my waistband while I threaded my way to a door at the far end of the room that opened on an interior hallway. Here there were numbered doors for apartments and a staircase. Cricket's apartment was on the second floor, so I went up the stairs, hugging the outside wall to have a better chance of seeing anyone coming down. In spite of my precautions, I nearly ran into a girl carrying some flattened cardboard boxes on the second floor landing. I shifted the gun to my left hand and held it behind my back. The girl was short and thin and blonde and looked all of about 20. She smiled and leaned her boxes against the baluster. You must be Jimmy, she said. I'm Caitlin. We just moved a Lodesworth into the kitchen and living room, but we haven't got to the bedroom. Feel free to go in and grab your stuff. More wheels turned in my head than a triple-decker hamster cage. Right, I said finally. Doors unlocked then? Yes, apartment 210, she laughed. But you know that. I'm just running these down to the storage locker. I've got to move some laundry to the dryer as well. So pull the door closed if I'm not back when you're ready to leave. She started to pick up her boxes and then looked back at me with a worried expression. Maybe I should... Her voice trailed off. I gave her the big, high-wattage smile. Don't worry, I said. I won't take anything that's not mine. In fact, why don't I wait for you to come back? I can give you a few pointers on the cranky plumbing. Her face cleared. That'd be great. See you in a few, then. I smiled her down the first few steps and then turned to go up the hallway, holding the gun at my side. 
I didn't know what I was going to say when she got back, but I did know I was going to find a way to wait in the apartment until the real Jimmy Shantz showed up. I didn't wait long. As I stepped through the door, a massive arm hooked over my throat and began ratcheting down like a pipe fitter's wrench. I raised the colt. It was slapped out of my hand. I clawed at the arm ineffectually, my fingers finding no purchase on the hairless skin. I felt myself being dragged backward, and then there was a stinging pain at my left shoulder, the bite of a hypodermic needle. I twisted to the right, trying to shake off my attacker, or at least forestall the descent of the plunger. I succeeded only in cramping my back. I reached over to find the hand holding the hypodermic. I gripped the thumb and bent it back with everything I had left. I heard a grunt, and the needle was rammed even further into my arm. My legs spasmed, and I bit so hard on my partial plate that I actually felt it crack. My vision went spotty, and then entirely dark. I felt myself slumping to the ground. My consciousness melted, puddled, and dissolved through the floor, an insentient black ooze like tar from some prehistoric pit. To say that I came to would be an overstatement. I was aware of pain, strange odors, and the taste of iron in my mouth, but I didn't really believe these things, or more accurately, think they had anything to do with me. I was a thing apart. I was weightless and transcendent, an incorporeal phantom hovering over the world of physical sensation. Seconds, minutes, or possibly even hours went by. I had no way to gauge. Gradually there was a change. I began to grow heavy, to get reconnected with my body. Sensations sharpened and grew more real. I was able to move my arm, and I felt the pain that radiated from my left shoulder as I did so. But there was no question of opening my eyes. It was worth my life to keep them closed and avoid confronting my situation. More time passed. A feverish sweat formed on my brow. I ran a rubber tongue over puffy, dry lips. A stink of rotten eggs or something worse came into my nostrils. I gagged and then coughed, rubbing up against a multitude of sharp points and protrusions all along my legs, back, and head. I brought a shaking right hand up to my temples and massaged them. I realized I was lying head down and could no longer suppress the desire to learn where I was and what had happened to me. I pried open my eyes. Seams of light glowed above me, but there was very little else to see. I was in a darkened box of some sort, lying on an irregular surface. I reached below me and felt a stuffed plastic bag, then an eggshell, and then something moist and grainy I thought might be coffee grounds. I was in a dumpster. I struggled to my knees, breaking through the trash bags I knelt on, and reached up to the lid of the dumpster. Its surface was slimed and corroded. I pushed with one hand and succeeded in raising it less than an inch. I got my feet underneath me and brought both hands to bear, driving upward with trembling legs. The lid flipped over on its hinge and slammed against the wall of the building. I clutched the lip of the dumpster to keep from falling back into it. My heart beat against my ribcage like a trapped animal. My head spun like a tilt-a-whirl. My eyes in the faint glow of dawn light told me I was behind the apartment building sometime in the early morning. My watch told me it was 546. I'd been out for nearly 18 hours. I didn't know if Cricket had intended to kill me or merely incapacitate me, or if he even cared, but I did know it had been a close call. 
I brought my hand up to my throat to rub the bruised skin and muscle, and in doing so, aggravated the pain in my left shoulder. I raised my arm to examine it. There was a circle of blood around a hole in the sleeve of my suit coat, and sticking out of the hole, the jagged spike of a broken needle. I took hold of the needle and yanked it out. It hurt less than I expected, but that didn't mean it didn't hurt. I put the needle fragment in my breast pocket in hopes there was something to be learned by having it analyzed, and then milked the wound, encouraging it to bleed to flush out any germs that might have been on the needle. Not that it would do me any good at this point. From its rapid effects and the out-of-body feeling I'd had, my guess was that Cricket had injected me with ketamine, or Special K, as it's called on the streets. Stockwell had said Carolyn had been drugged with GHB, which along with Special K and Rufinol, were among the drugs favored by date-rape practitioners. A preference for these drugs seemed to fit well with Cricket's need to knock his victims out for long periods of time, to create his masterworks. I took a couple of deep breaths to psych myself up, and then slithered over the edge of the dumpster. I stood beside it, shivering, and feeble like a newborn bird that had fallen from its nest. I patted myself down. Thankfully, Stockwell's and my keys were still in my front pockets. But my wallet was missing, and of course there was no sign of the Colt 44. I still had the shotgun shells from Zimmler, and my knife was still lying snug in its harness on my leg. I trudged around the back of the building to the gate. I went through it and then across the front lawn to where I spotted a garden hose. I turned on the spigot and drank what seemed like two aquariums worth of water. My tongue strayed to the roof of my mouth while I drank, and I found a new sharp edge. I remembered the cracking noise when Cricket attacked me, and I pulled the plate out to examine it. Sure enough, the molded material at the back had split down the middle. The edge of the crack was extremely sharp, and coupled with the earlier damage, made wearing the plate like going around with a couple of razors in your mouth. Vanity made me return it. My hair was disheveled, my clothing blood-stained, and I smelled of a dumpster, but damned if I was going to walk around without my front teeth. I shut off the faucet and looked up at the building. It dawned on me suddenly that Cricket might have hurt the girl if she'd come back to the apartment before he got out. I hurried up to the entryway and pressed the buzzer for 210. I waited for less than 20 seconds and mashed it down again. A noise like an electronic cough came over the speaker dingus and a sleepy voice said, Yes? Caitland? I said. Yes, who is this? Tension leached out of my shoulders. Never mind, I said, and released the talk button. I went down the walk and across the street to Stockwell's Explorer. I figured it was more important to get hold of Stockwell and find out what had happened than it was to talk to the girl. Early morning traffic was almost non-existent going across the city. When I got to my neighborhood, I found there were no parking places in the immediate vicinity, but I wasn't in the mood to dick around with it, especially with someone else's car. I shoved the Explorer squarely into the bus stop in front of the building and jumped out. I went up the stairs more by force of will than physical locomotion. I came panning up to my apartment and stopped short. A beautiful woman in a black crepe dress and designer shoes was curled up asleep in front of my door. She had a laptop computer under her head that she was using as a sort of pillow. It was Gretchen. I reached down to rouse her. She woke with a start and her eyes fluttered open. August, she said blurrily, where have you been? It's a long story, Angel. A more relevant question is, what are you doing here? She pushed herself upright, suddenly very awake. It's Chris. Something's happened to him. I stared at her, my thought processes verging on vapor lock. 
It seemed like there was more than enough already without this. What exactly, I said. I think he's been kidnapped. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.